0: This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. And I am really, really excited to start this new series. This is going to be the Q&A series with me and nick gloff so nick gloff welcome back and welcome to being a co-host of the show and let's talk a little bit about why we came together and decided to to do that today
0: well thank you for having me i appreciate being here and really kind of the point that both of us wanted to get to with coming and doing this this regular installment of q a's is one of the biggest things as coaches for the both of us and the people that we attract the content we put out it's a lot of thought-provoking type stuff And it's a lot of stuff that we end up having to backtrack and have a lot of like re-answering a lot of the same questions where it's all base foundation stuff, where when you understand the base foundations, you can kind of assume and intuit those things that a lot of people do. But there are people that are just coming into this side of things that want to learn more about training and nutrition and everything that just don't know enough about the foundations to make those intuitions. So because of that, with the inquisitive minds that we have that do really like to follow us and ask us questions, we end up repeating ourselves a ton. So I am personally, even aside from this Q&A section, doing a ton of Q&A stuff, cranking out more and more videos with as many people will sit down and talk with me so that we can start getting a base foundation of all of these things covered so we can have easy referral to all the long form answers to the questions that everyone consistently asks us.
1: And set up that base knowledge set so that people can start to expound from that base that we've set
0: for them. Yep. So we're not just covering over the same rocks all the time and we can start moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Start start hitting some bigger things. So I
1: actually, we both had questions, so we're going to kind of alternate based on these pages. Um, I actually had a good one that I don't think you've covered on the podcast before. um, And I think it's something that people miscue all the time. And with some of the things that have happened in the bodybuilding culture, I feel like it'd be good to cut the cover, um, is cues for incline barbell pressing and high incline barbell pressing. Uh, Specifically hand positions, what are you thinking? What are you cueing? What do we wanna see? Things like that. I know this is something both you and I are very passionate about making sure that um, everything is where it needs to be. um, Not only from a safety standpoint, but getting the most out of uh, what you can actually output here. So let's just go over the basic cues, the basic things we want to see on setup
0: and then kind of go from there. So the basic things for setup for an incline or a very high incline, basically an overhead press is I'm always looking from the ground up to start with, Mm -hmm. especially with a high angle where you're having the force of the bar trying to push you straight down and then down the incline of the bench you're on. You need to have a counter force that isn't just you pressing into the bottom of the seat And then having that, the natural reaction of having the equal forces being dispersed back upwards as they are down, trying to bank on that isn't usually how that's going to work because the force will disperse across whatever structures will take it. And it's not always the ideal structures to be taking it and it throws off other things. It lessens your ability to create actual tension and output, to be able to actually move the weight through space in the way it's supposed to and guide it. And then, you know, all the following. So I'm always looking for the foundation first at the floor. First thing is thinking about what angle the force is trying to push you down through the bench and then trying to match that angle with an appropriate angle through the legs on the floor to try and oppose it. So having the feet directly beneath you or directly beneath your knees while you're on an incline press doesn't usually work very well because your downward pressure straight from that point is pushing upwards. It's not really pushing against the diagonal path that the the force of the barbell is trying to push you or dumbbells is trying to push you down. Yep. So feet a little bit out in front of the knees so that you can get some back pressure as if you're trying to like push whatever bench you're sitting in backwards across the floor behind you. Not like you're trying to tip it, drag it slowly across the
1: ground
0: Yeah. is the way I like to cue that.
1: And what you'll see is like, you may even like, depending on how you're setting this up, if you're not doing like free bar, if you're doing this in a Smith, you may have to set up things behind the bench in order to keep that bench from sliding on you, depending on the surface in which you're pressing. Yes. Uh, Because our Smiths at destination are actually uh, on concrete. So I have to put like three or four 45 pound plates behind my bench, because when I set that brace against the path of like against the opposing direction, that bench will actually move and you're going to lose a lot of output with that.
0: What I tell my own clients usually is if, if you don't feel like there's a risk of the bench sliding backwards while you're doing it, you don't have enough ground pressure. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what surface you're on. If you don't feel like you're about to push it across the floor, it's not enough. Yep. You're not opposing it well enough. Yep. So that's always first to look at. Then following that up from the floor, is not much is going to happen between the floor, your foot, all the way up to the knee and into the upper leg. Mm-hmm. That's all just going to be you trying to apply force. It's yep. not a whole lot of cueing. It's really just putting pressure through the floor. The yeah. next thing to think about is the position of the pelvis. So the position of the pelvis internally and the position of, pel- of the pelvis relative to, the, to the, the bench.
1: The rib cage as well, too, though.
0: Yes, that too. But to start off with just the pelvis in isolation, yeah. looking at where on this bench are you actually setting your physical pelvis like your where is your butt <laughs> basically is really what i'm trying to get at to start with yeah. is that in relativity to how the bench is actually made is important yeah. if you are trying to sit yourself all the way down into the crease of it you're probably going to have an upstream issue you're yeah. going to reflexively fall into anterior tilt of the pelvis which is going to mess up the brace position between the pelvis and the rib cage which will then destabilize your ability to control the rib cage and then the shoulder blades that run across it, then the shoulder that is attached with. Mm -hmm. So, and that's going to directly affect everything with the pattern because it happens at the shoulder.
1: Output and shoulder stability in this incline to high incline position.
0: Yes. Yeah. So it's going to have a big effect. So most people are not ever going to think about the fact that your pelvis matters for what your shoulders are doing, but indeed it does. Everything has an effect somewhere else. Yes. So thinking about exactly where you need to put your your pelvis to get that to happen, just think about trying to brace on any other movement. You're trying to brace on a deadlift or a squat or something. What do you want your midsection to look like? Do you want your rib cage to be flared up all the way and then your butt hanging behind you like your daffy duck? No, (laughs) not what you want. It doesn't look good. It doesn't work for any of those other patterns. You don't feel strong there unless of course you're a multiply lifter and you're trying to do a West side barbell legs, a mile apart squat, Yeah, which is the only exception, which have added if that's you. Um, So for me, what I typically cue people to do is to sit their butt a little bit farther forward than they think that they should. So then they can actually get their pelvis to match with the angle of the rib cage while it's laid down on the bench itself. If it's too close to the crevice, you're going to fall into anterior tilt. You're going to have that extra extension at the lumbar spine. You're going to have a difficult time actually taking the forces through your spine in a, in a good direction. And you're going to be taking it through structures that should. So
1: yep. this is where I struggle the most is keeping that pelvis aligned to the ribcage. Because I have that tendency to want to go into that anterior pelvic tilt. Yeah. I have to be really strict on my setup when it comes to And you can see it in some of my pressing videos. Yeah. You can actually see my setups not 100%. That's why, honestly, I pretty much video every press that I do is because I'm trying to see where where that's at, because my feel versus real is so skewed when comes yeah. to pressing. So like I have to use video feedback for that. Um, so we've set the pelvis. We've direct we've created direction of force for opposing from the feet up. Now we have to set the rib cage up according to the press pattern. Let's kind of discuss what that looks like. Um, and then how that's going to help with the, uh, pressing pattern with how the shoulders are going to move around the ribcage.
0: Okay. So from the pelvis up into the ribcage, we do, we don't want to treat it exactly the same way as a brace that you would on a deadlift or a squat. You don't need to, it's not necessary. Trying to do all those same cues is going to be counterproductive. You're mm-hmm. going to be putting too much focus there where it doesn't need it. Yep. We are doing a movement that even though it's a compound movement, we are externally stabilized. By a bench that restricts us from doing any sort of ridiculous spinal extension. Yep. So we don't need to be thinking as much about trying to like tuck everything together, pack it, blow up a huge brace. Those things don't matter because we're not trying to stabilize in three, like 360 degrees around us. Correct. You have 180 degrees of that taken care of. It's already taken care of. You don't have to worry about the rotation aspect of anything. Yep. You're set there. So not an issue. Don't think about it as much. You set, the rib cage in a position where it is aligned to the pelvis. So we have that open scissor position is what we consider it where for anybody that doesn't know, imagine scissors. If you have an open scissor and we're trying to think about it this way, you want them to be in parallel lines. If you're in parallel lines, you're going to be able to create enough pressure in your midsection to create enough outward pressure within the abdominal cavity for you to have a good brace. Yes. It's, a closed scissor in your pelvis is turned up or your rib cage is turned and you end up having an intersection of those lines that those lines would be across the iliac crest over the top in a parallel line and then across the bottom rib in a parallel line. If those lines were to intersect, if you were to uh, draw them out, you have a problem. Your brace isn't nearly as effective as it could be. Okay? Okay. Moving forward, when we're trying to set up a brace, and the pelvis versus rib cage position on an incline or an overhead press. You're going to be wanting to, setting up like with that in mind with the parallel path, but you don't need to create the giant blown up brace that you normally would. You want to have enough of a contraction with an intent into slight flexion so that you have control over where the rib cage goes and where the pelvis is being oriented but not so much that you don't have access to expansion and compression of the rib cage through movement.
1: Yeah. I cue it as like a small compression, mm-hmm. just like thinking about that compression into the rib cage slightly, but not as hard as like you would on a squat pattern or deadlift pattern.
0: Yep. Yep. Having just enough that you can hold the rib cage in place and it's not having a ton of access to movement Yeah, enough that when you do take in, because breathing this is going to be fairly important. Mm -hmm. The amount of brace that you get on a pressing pattern like this is going to be tightly, uh, tightly related to the respiratory part of the brace rather than just the muscular part of the brace. So the respiratory part of the brace is what's going to help as you expand the pressure within the lungs to get enough air in there. So you do have a pressing uh, foundation for the shoulder as you're going into the bottom, most difficult position, to initiate the, the path and stabilize, to then get it back up. Yep.
1: So next we need to kind of go into scapular position, humeral position and hand position and where that kind of looks like from a start to finish once we set that up.
0: Okay. So for what I would want to see, which is contentious and debated yeah. a lot, of course, because anything that you can create a nuance about everybody's going to jump on. (laughs) But for me, the way I like to attack an inclined movement is an incline. You can pretty much, I mean, within the middle range to the middle top end range of an angle, I'm going to focus more on retraction than depression. Yes. And then on the other sides where it's a little bit lower, lower, and then closer to flat, a little bit more depression, Still retraction, but more depression. And then the same thing as you get into very high inclines and you go to overhead. Yep. Okay. So as far as that's going to go, uh, in conjunction with the position of the shoulder blades, it's going to dictate what path you're going to have access to with the upper arm. Yep. And for me, when I'm looking at an incline pattern that I'm really trying to hit chest with or designing to do so, I'm going to be looking for a fairly abducted arm path. I don't want to see above 90 degree abduction because it's not going to be helpful, but we also don't want to be trying to track as if we're doing like a flat barbell press where the usual cueing is the J path where the arm is coming close to the rib cage. It's not going to be helpful for what we're trying to achieve. So do you
1: cue like for me It's somewhere in that 60 to 85 degrees relative to torso position is more kind of what you're trying to see? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Same, same. Same here. So not right at 90, but somewhere just below within that 60 to 85, probably pretty close. Okay. Yeah. And then we need to set the framework of force transfer back into the bar from the bottom. So we need to set up hand to elbow to humerus, what that looks like, and then probably be pretty good from there.
0: Yeah. Um. For the hand, when I'm looking to set up somebody's grip, I really don't like ever seeing a collapsed grip. Even if it's like some special technique of a collapsed grip, like a bulldog grip yeah for pressing i would really really much prefer seeing a full stacked grip where the wrist is actually in straight line and held that way uh-huh. and there's a technique that i use to set it up which almost looks like a hook grip and the way that you set it up is similar to uh-huh. where, if for anybody watching this you're going to get this a whole lot better than anybody that's just listening to this but yeah. i will do my best to describe it so that it can work what i would do for the portions of the setup you're looking to specifically actually do this step by step you set the shoulder blades in the position that they're going to be first put the hands to the bar when you put the hands to the bar set at the width that you're going to go to which we will discuss afterwards with where that should be Mm -hmm. laterally deviate the hand as far as you can take it then use the meaty part in between your thumb and your forefinger and just dig that into the bar as hard as you possibly can then from there you wrap over the first finger and then the thumb over that finger. And then the rest, the, almost all of the pressure on your hand should be on those two fingers. Then the rest of the pressure is dispersed across the rest of the fingers that, that wrap around the bar. Yep. Now, for those watching, what's going to happen is when you have that pressure primarily on this side of the hand, on the side with the thumb and the first finger, and you have it set up in the way that I just described, the bar is going to want to sit in a straight line across the hand. It's going to sit in a straight line, but it's not going to have the maximum surface area contact with the hand, which is the distinction that's important. So when you're trying to just grab the bar and go, usually what people end up thinking about or just unconsciously doing is trying to get the most surface area of the hand on the bar that they can, thinking that that's going to be better, which it isn't necessarily. So when you actually set up and try to get the most surface area of the bar, you end up rotating the hand. You end up internally rotating the whole shoulder to accomplish it too. So if you're set up this way, like I described, laterally deviated, press the hand in, first finger, then thumb over first finger, and then the rest wrap, you're going to sit with the wrist vertical, the hand oriented vertically to that, and then the same thing down. And the way that I would like to set up with the grip, uh, beyond that with the width, is to find a position where at the the bottom of the movement you're gonna do, your wrist is directly above the elbow. I don't want to see the elbow outside in the hand on the inside nearer to the shoulder. I also don't want it to be outside and you're trying to press so wide that it ends up being almost like you're doing, you know, round the world rear delt type fly movement with a barbell over your head. Okay, so direct stacking is going to be your best bet. And wherever that is, where you have your arms extended is where that should be. And that grip width should also allow you to get all the way into a lockout position without your shoulders having to follow your hand. Yep. And if those criteria are met, you're in a good position. Yeah.
1: but that. So the big takeaways there is like that wrist to elbow stacking at the bottom and that lack of elevation of the shoulder joint at the top. And if you can avoid doing that and use video cues to kind of see that, that's going to be like, The ideal setup for you. And and you may have to tinker with some pelvis rib cage stuff or or setting the feet appropriately to kind of push force back into the direction that you need it. But if we can get that portion correct, the rest of it typically falls into place pretty easily, um, is what I find. So um, it's interesting because I struggle with the grip. I can't fully hook grip. Um if I so I I actually false thumb it, which makes it harder for me to stack it. Yeah, um, because I do get some of that elbow, that wrist flexion, um, but I'm slowly moving towards being able to do it. So um, getting there. So. All right. So that covers that. Uh, do you want to do one question from some of the ones you got?
0: Uh, sure. I do want to add in a couple of cues to that one, though, just, to uh, make yes, it, that. just so that it feels a little bit easier to intuit how this goes. There shouldn't be uh, like a powerlifting crossover here with like an incline press where you're trying to use drive from your legs at a specific moment for you to get the bar up. Yeah. Your body should be staying in a stationary position throughout. The only things that you should be seeing change is your rib cage moving slightly because the air is filling and coming out of the lungs during the press. And then your upper arm moving. Yeah. Is really the only things that should be moving at all. You shouldn't be having any position, like any moment where the hip is trying to move to accommodate and your legs are moving everywhere, your feet are dancing around, Like none of that stuff should ever be happening ever.
1: Yeah, and you'll, it's very distinct too. Like if you ever watch powerlifting versus bodybuilders should do it right. Like there is a drastic shift in hip position relative to the press. When we cue that J press appropriately, like for flat benching, yep. um, where we're, when we're like incline pressing, we want that stationary pelvis position relative to rib cage. So.
0: Yep, and then, some other things that I would I would like to make clear too is when because th- this is a cue that I have found that really helps a lot of people, just because of, there's a lack of awareness of what your like all the back musculature is doing to help you with your pressing. I'm not going to make the argument that your lat is going to press for you. It's not going to. However, it is important for actually setting your shoulder and taking care of it throughout the pattern and allowing you to do it right, as well as all the muscles that act directly on the scapula so that you can keep your shoulder blades set in the right position for the press to be successful. So as you're coming down in the eccentric, you should be thinking instead of lowering the weight, thinking about rowing it down or doing a a pull down with that weight in your hands. That way you're actively cueing yourself to get all of those things to tighten down to create a more solid foundation. And then when you get to your most vulnerable position in the bottom, your shoulders are actually in a much more stable position to just continue the press. So your upper arm isn't on a shifty uh, foundation where it's going to have to figure out, okay, exactly how am I doing this? And we're just going to send it however we can and most efficient path will rain. You can set the most efficient path yourself by making sure that all the things that lock down the one end of that moving joint is locking it down. So focus on rowing it or pulling it down all the way to the bottom and then press it.
1: I actually use that row cue on my prep. So like with empty bar, empty Smith or whatever, actually rowing that bar down uh, to set that position. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll actually even do it to the point that I'll attach a band to the top, even if I'm not using a band for that pattern so that I feel that resistance. And I I just cue that position so much better.
0: Um, That's actually a point that we should say, too. Is during prep movements for this and going through your warmups, if you cannot do the full range of motion you're trying to get to, and you can video this to, to clarify for yourself, if you can't take no weight or the bar or just a very, very light weight that isn't actually challenging whatsoever, and use that cue to row it down or pull it down to you without restriction, you have other things that you need to take care of before you start loading it heavier on that day. Yep. Or else You're running into just hoping that your autonomous pattern of doing that movement is going to override whatever issues you already have that are going to disperse those forces into places that you don't want. Which, I mean, most common, most common thing that lifters gripe about isn't that, I mean, even though we hear this all the time, I can't squat, I can't deadlift, I can't bend over row, this, that, the other almost everybody ubiquitously goes i can't do barbell pressing i can't do compound pressing it's all on machines i can't do anything else like, there's a reason for that it's because you suck at it yeah if you don't suck at it and you actually treat it like it's important and all the mechanics that underlie how to do it correctly you're not going to perceive this insane injury risk cuz if you actually take care of your shit and you don't allow the you don't allow the load that you're using to dictate the amount of range of motion that you have during the movement, you're going to be okay. But if you rely on the weight itself to get you access to the range of motion you wouldn't get otherwise, you're in trouble. And then there are some other dogmatic cues in the bodybuilding world that we have decided that, that coexist at the same time, that don't belong coexisting at the same time, that are pretty much the direct cause as to why we have Hectares and things on on pressing movements all the time, which we can talk about if you want. But yeah, let's, let's leave
1: that be. Okay. <laughs> all right, let's let's leave that be. A little bit too sensitive a topic for certain people that may be listening.
0: Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, we'll that have question another question? day when we're when we're a little bit more willing to take some heat. <laughs> <laughs> what you got? Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. i've got a bunch in here but i gotta find one that's going to be like really good for us to go through here i have one about tempos and pause reps and the utility
1: in them. we could touch on that really quick
0: yeah yeah we could touch on that uh you get started and i'll find a good one all right so i've got one accommodating resistance for hypertrophy yes no and why we do that after
1: yeah you want to do the combinator resistance first or pause? pause? No, nah, we'll do that after. All right, Go cool. Ahead. All right, let's start. So tempos like pause reps, slow eccentrics, and quarter reps, et cetera, are they worth the time and effort for hypertrophy as they tend to result in less total reps and weight, assuming proximity to failure is the same? Okay. So great question. Um, this is from Ungraceful Potato. Love the love the um, <laughs> IG handle there. Um I think, I think when we, we use tempos and pause reps, we have to understand the utility in them and not just say yes or no to like there, there is no utility to be used. So for me, pause reps for most people are going to be positioning. So learning the position of whatever pattern we've reintroduced. So a lot of times this will be like when we reintroduce a pattern that hasn't been performed or we move from up a progression scheme, whether when we're running up like the regression progression scheme for whatever pattern, um, pauses will be something to cue positions in extreme ranges. And it'll also allow us to learn how to be in that position without causing injuries when the pattern is newer. Okay. Tempos are going to be something similar. Um, tempos for me are also something to create connection um, with certain people. Um, if it's a body part that they really struggle with, um, so like the prime example here is keeping lateral raises in the delts versus the traps. We can use, uh, we can use tempos in order to cue that because we technically would, could argue we're getting more mechanical tension because the tension's going actually directly where it can go. Um, quarter reps, not a big fan. I think that we should probably be doing more so, Full range of motion reps for everything that we do according to the goal of the exercise at hand and that quarter reps is just more of that ig showy flashy like let's do one and one quarter reps because it looks cool and it's something different
0: yep um your reasoning for those also pauses are there just like the tempo is to accentuate a specific portion of a movement that may have the most benefit for spending time there. So besides like the positioning and like the queuing and everything, it can also be used to accentuate exactly the position where you're going to gain the most benefit out of the movement. And if you were to just fly out of it, you're not going to get the same benefit. So being like the very bottom position of a squat pattern yeah, or the very bottom position of like a hinge pattern, if you don't spend any time there. You're not getting the benefit of being there which for those movements, the primary benefit is there.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times we see that, see that being a loaded stretched position for most biceps. Yes. We can use isometrics in a shortened position prior to training to upregulate capacity to use that muscle group, but I'm not so much keen on pausing in a contracted as much as I am in a stretch position.
0: Yep, yep, agreed. Agreed. Unless it's for a very specific purpose, which it may, may end up being used for. Yeah, for sure. All um, right. Tempo. I'll go through the list. Yeah. Tempo, same thing. It's going to be helpful, helpful for queuing and position. A lot of issues with just, re- just regular pattern issues that almost everyone's going to run into can be mostly mitigated just by controlling the tempo. You can avoid actually taking care of what movement issues you have if you move fast enough to avoid them. So that is for me the major thing that I use a tempo for. It's mostly a, a learning thing. And after the learning has been done to make a movement quality and autonomous, the tempo no longer actually has to be enforced to the same degree where it's like a four second eccentric, a two second pause, a one second up, and then a one second up top. But like you don't need to stick to those like one, 100, two, 100, three, 100, four. Like you don't. After a certain point, it just becomes part of the way you do it. The time that you do it for will be different. You won't probably fall into the pattern of doing a four-second eccentric naturally. You're gonna have to force that to happen. But if the difference was prior to, you had absolutely no wherewithal for how quick you're doing something and just like dive bombing every time, you control yourself to that extreme, you're going to revert back to the mean where you're going to start having somewhat more control and actually putting the tension through the tissue it's supposed to be on instead of just flying through the pattern as quickly as you can to avoid it.
1: Yeah. Prime example here is me re reintroducing internal stability squat patterns. I'm using tempo to make sure that from the top to the bottom, everything has the tension where it's supposed to be in position. As I move into that bottom hole where stability is lacking for me at the moment, um, so that I'm also not going into that vulnerable position with momentum as well. So, um, prime example of like using a tempo
0: and totally agree with you on trying to put it like for specific movement patterns where other muscles can take over very easily Mm -hmm. it's extremely valuable and in that case the reversion to the meme may not even be the option or the target with the tempo for most exercises having a tempo is more of a learning thing and a weeding out process for taking care of other cueing issues just Mm -hmm. by the nature of doing it but then in other cases, like the lateral raise that you said, there are some patterns where you go and try and do them and you do them with, without much wherewithal with how fast you're doing it. You're going to put those forces into other things or just use momentum from one initial movement to carry most of it and you're not getting the benefit of the movement. So if something for a lateral raise, um, cable lateral raise or something like that, where you don't have any sort of, there, you don't get any gain out of that by throwing it at any point ever. And you're really going to get more out of it the slower you move with it. Going to the point of absurdity is ridiculous. You don't need a 10-second concentric. It's not going to be helpful. But you going from the bottom, because I see this one as a specific example a ton, I'm like literally a cable lateral as the example. Starting at the bottom, then all the benefit to doing that is really... It's starting from the bottom and you have the tension there in the bottom so you can load the in portion. But then what happens is it's hard there, so the initial movement is tossing it. And then once you toss it, you've already gotten it into the range where it starts to drop off, and then you get it all the way to the top and then you drop it back to the floor again, yep. which completely defeats the purpose. And if you actually want to get something out of it, the way I cue it is the first three inches of movement off the bottom are the slowest and then after that point, you continue moving without acceleration. And then from the top down, it's the same. The first three inches are the slowest. And then you carry on with no acceleration at the same speed. 100% agree there. 100% on board. What was the last, uh, last portion of that that we brought up? Quarter reps. Oh, quarter reps. I don't need to add anything to that. You got it. <laughs> yeah, just Instagram bullshit. Um,
1: Okay, so we've we defined the utility there. I think we can probably go into your accommodating resistance question.
0: Yeah. Who asked? Uh, it was Albert.4. Okay. All right. Um, a Good lot question. of a uh, lot I'll of, just read it off for beta. Yeah. Accommodating resistance for hypertrophy. Yes, no, and why context.
1: Ooh, great question. I think there's a lot of various utilities for accommodating resistance within hypertrophy. Um, big, big fan um, from a, for me, an injury injury prevention standpoint and or a cueing standpoint to start. So um, the prime example here is like accommodating resistance on a leg press or performing like a banded leg press variation in order for someone to learn full control in the bottom portion of a leg press and be able to own that position because we're deloading as we come down into the bottom also to to put the leg press in a position that is a little bit more quad dominant it allows us to do that with the accommodating resistance of added band tension um, specifically if setup is done appropriately to accommodate that goal Um, so for me it's also something to teach initiation out of the bottom of something as well So starting a pattern with the muscle group, you want to be the primary because we've learned to do it in a lower load position and we can slowly regress the accommodating resistance as we learn to initiate patterns with it straight out the gate.
0: And in the reverse, but also adding to your point is on the same movement in the same context, also learning because it has this benefit too. If you have the overloading in in the top position of a leg press like that, as a specific example, you're also learning how to initiate that portion of the movement with the right muscle. Because as soon as you unlock the knee and the leg isn't straight, you're going to have to take that force somewhere. And if you don't want it to just bury you immediately, you're going to have to take it through the quad. You're, there's no if, ands, or buts. If there is enough tension there, there's no choice. You will have to. So you'll have to initiate with a contraction there to control the descent. And as you get into the bottom, you will be deloading, like you said, so that you can actually get to the bottom comfortably, then feel what it's like to be there, and then initiate with the same muscle that got you there and get yourself all the way back up.
1: And I think possibly the end goal there is to progressively pull the band resistance to the point that we can fully load the stretch position of a leg press. I think I
0: I would say so. Yeah.
1: That there's a lot of utility in that and that. Um, learning to progressively get stronger within the banded accommodating resistance that you have there and then have progression once comfortable be slow removal of bands. So this could look like something you use two, 100 pound bands on a leg press to start. You progress it. You feel comfortable. You use two 60 pound leg, 60 pound bands to go from there. Um, then you could either make the jump from sixty to like thirty or forty, or you could just full-on go to without it. Um, I see a lot of utility of that within hip engine. So, um, like the dual band on the deadlift platform has like the most band accommodating resistance that you can have. Um, so the band's fully stretched across the full platform, and then slowly going to not stretching the bands quite as much um, to applying one single band to the center of the bar by standing on it and then fully removing the band. In agreement. Anything else from a hypertrophy standpoint you think that it's going to be beneficial for?
0: Um, Major things that I'd like to say about accommodating resistance to start with too is just major point. It shouldn't be looked at as a replacement for the thing that you're actually adding the accommodating resistance to. So problem only doing a reverse band hack squat, reverse band or normally banded um, or positive banded, whichever way you want to say it, onto a leg press or a another press movement, upper body, lower body, doesn't matter. Accommodating resistance is a tool. It's a, a way to create a variation for a specific purpose. It's not to completely replace the initial movement because uh, accommodating resistance is quote unquote superior because that's not the case. And to further that point, Accommodating resistance has been shown to be helpful for strength specifically, but does not have a big effect on hypertrophy, which is one of the things that is a misconception about this whole like, and that extends even towards specifically trying to overload one part of a range of motion on a muscle or another. It's an idea that can work that can help with programming, which can have its own independent effect that way. Because it's working with the overall of all the other pieces in the program to create a more holistic approach to how you can stress a muscle, which overall done well is going to help with the hypertrophy. But just by itself, trying to manipulate where the most loading is being done on a muscle is not necessarily going to give you all that much more hypertrophy effect. So that is an extension off of accommodating resistance research, and that's what it amounts to. Reverse banding any movement is not going to give you guaranteed better hypertrophy potential because you have dispersed more of the force, even more evenly across the entire range of the movement. That's not going to be the the case.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point to make. And I think some people see me doing some of the accommodating resistance stuff and think that it's like the Holy grail. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times guys, like specifically right now for my knee, like loading a stretch position with my knee is the main issue. So I'm using accommodating resistance on a leg press so that I can load a stretch position without fucking blowing my patella through a wall. Um, and then also, too, like with the other pieces of the program comment. Uh, so y'all may have seen I'm doing like a reverse banded Smith press at the moment. Uh, so it, it it aligns it a little bit better strength, curve, resistance profile. However, the next movement I do after that is loading a fully stretched pack. So this is where we start to tinker with these pieces and still programming patterns that aren't accommodating resistance within a program. We're just deciding whether to prioritize which one versus the other within the setup that we have. So um, we're still addressing different in ranges and the, the base goal of every pattern um, by choosing the pieces appropriately. All
0: right. Sound good. Yeah.
1: All right. I've got a doozy of a question, but it's a good one. So. um I'm going to paraphrase this, cjp.90, because you wrote me three paragraphs. Um, So, basically, he's been training with progressive overload for about two and a half years, using the same movement patterns with minor adjustments. The question is, what is the logic behind discussing training blocks? What does it look like setting this up, and does this consist of rotating movement patterns between each block?
0: okay so here's first topic that needs to get said that overall periodizing in a major way to separate what the goal adaptation of each block for hypertrophy based athletes is is not helpful okay so trying to do like the traditional like uh, strength and conditioning type periodizations you're going through like a strength specific phase, a power specific phase, a speed phase, a coordination phase, a hypertrophy phase, game phase, whatever. And with any of those delineations, it's not going to be helpful. That's what we're talking about when anybody says periodization for hypertrophy athletes doesn't really matter. What can matter is all of the things that he did actually list is exercise selection, what you're specifically trying to bias. What movements and patterns need to be brought up? Which ones are going to be far above the others and can take maintenance from the time? Yeah. What specific body weak, uh, weak points you're trying to hit and things of the nature. And then other patterns that you've done for long enough that you've pretty much dried up the runway of how much you can get out of them and getting novelty by that point is going to renew your ability to make some forward progress on a similar pattern that's going to hit the same muscle tissues in a slightly different way.
1: So I think the point there is it's not novelty for novelty. It's novelty for necessity. Yep. Um, so I've seen a lot of people be able to run uh, same patterns for two and three blocks, like just dropping fatigue as needed, depending on where these volume landmarks are, if it's local fatigue or systemic fatigue yep. um, and still be able to progress it. But there is going to be a point where you have to, rotate patterns and we should we have a lot of options to address the same goal within most base patterns so just the novelty of reintroducing a different implement a lot of times can be um very very beneficial so like for example for me like my incline pressing for a hot minute was the incline prime press um, and then i was doing like a slight or uh, an incline dumbbell press as well so i have transitioned into the accommodating resistance smith incline Um, And then I've dropped the incline on chest pressing a bit for the dumbbell press um, to change the angle, but keep in dumbbell pressing for serratus function so that that is still maintained a little bit more um, because that's where things start to go awry for me. Um, So I've created more runway because I'm introducing an exercise I haven't done in like nine months. And I, my base point for that pattern ended up being where I ended that pattern at last time. So now that run rate is gonna take me into places I've never been before. So that's just a prime example, but I ran that incline prime press for like two and a half blocks before I was like, okay, yeah, it's done. There's no more. So prime. Yeah, example.
0: yeah I'm sorry to cut you off. No, go, go ahead. For my own people, as an example, I have some people that I've had to make every block is different. Yeah, There are some that I've had over a year have not had to change a single thing. So this is gonna be one of those things where you can try and keep chasing new novelty, trying to get more things to work over time. But if something's working, you don't change it. If there's no red flags as to the fact that you're just running out of headway, there's nothing left for you to do, you don't necessarily have to change.
1: So this may be a follow up question to that is what tells you, you don't, you, it's time to switch the pattern out. So here's a couple things that I go for. Mm -hmm. So niggles. So like consistent pain in a certain pattern, um, lack of progression with fatigue, not being the issue. So we can see lack of progression on a pattern because of fatigue dynamics being across the red line we talk about. Okay. If we drop fatigue, we return to the pattern and progressions are still stalled. That is a prime example of needing a novelty as well. And those are typically the two main ones I see. Are there any others that you would?
0: The only other one that I would consider is that you're not seeing direct decrements on that movement, but you're having decrements on the ones surrounding. Ah, yeah. So like that's taking away from the patterns that are. Yeah. Yeah. Not only within session, but in sessions following. Yeah. There are some movements that like, I'll take an example of myself with myself. When I have in back squats, I can take a hit on my pressing, not because of fatigue, but because of the fact that getting into an externally rotated position of the shoulder with flexion at the shoulder under that amount of load is extra torque on the shoulder creates an overloading issue there where it ends up being a problem when I try to put my arm overhead later. Yep which ends up being an issue for obviously the things surrounding, even though the squat may be going exceptionally well and rising. So even though, I mean, I'll keep on with my own example with where I ended my push on, on squats, I could have kept going a hundred percent. I had more runway. I know for a fact I did, but it was at the detriment of the things surrounding it where other movements within the day, were starting to take a hit. And then other movements outside of that day were also taking a hit. And after taking just enough time that I was willing to put the other things that far down the back burner for the progression I was looking for, that time expired and had to change. And now that change is being implemented. So that is a prime example of what I'm talking about there.
1: Yeah. And then solutions to that could be safety bar squatting, hack squatting, things that are not going to force you to brace in that externally rotated torque position. Um so that we can see that carry over into the pressing patterns.
0: Yep.
1: Cool. Cool, cool. All right. You got another one you want to touch on?
0: Uh sure. I'll find one.
1: Probably last one, huh?
0: Yeah, it'll be the last one. Um let's see. You want to cover your opinion on mid-shin rack pulls, but with high hips, versus single leg de- uh, not single leg, but stiff leg deadlift from the floor by Had a hand coup. Ooh,
1: okay. I'm gonna go ahead and say there's not much utility for hypertrophy in rack pools. Uh, Yeah, I'm gonna agree. So let's start there. Now, I am completely on board with a dead stop RDL, which people may confuse for a rack pool if they're not as clued in. Um, But for me, so I don't do very well RDLing to a floor. Okay. My lumbar position relative to my pelvis is just asking for an issue. So what I do is I set the framework for the bottom of my RDL, I perform it within an RDL hip pattern travel or hip travel pattern. um, And I'm just setting that with the blocks where I end that pattern um, for lack of momentum use and for where I can access tension in my glutes and hamstrings appropriately without it shifting away. Now, that's not for everyone. That's very specific to me. Nick, I know you can reach the floor with no issues. And there's a lot of people that can't. This is directly a problem for me that I'm still addressing. So if the utility is the same hip pattern as an RDL and we're using the blocks to cue the bottom of the RDL, that's very useful. Um, I think ideally we would hip hinge from the floor, but not... Everybody can do that without losing lumbar positioning relative to pelvis.
0: Yep. And there's a distinction here too, between a stiff leg deadlift and an RDL, which I would, I would like to make sure that we say is that for for me, even on an RDL, I can't touch the floor on an RDL because of, yeah, I can't touch the floor on an RDL because the bar path for my RDL is closer to the shin. I cannot do it without me getting an excessive amount of knee bend, which turns into a dorian or a just normal conventional deadlift yeah. so but when i can touch the floor that's on either just a regular standard conventional or it's a stiff yeah which i make the distinction for because in rdl if i were to try and bring it any lower i'll just drop the bar
1: yeah 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 which is where i'm at because it's stiff we can let that we can let that bar drift on us a little bit Yep. where it allows us more access to range of motion without loss of yep lumbar position relative to pelvis i'm at the point now i don't really do stiff leg anymore i'll be honest
0: yeah nobody needs to really do it if they don't want to if there's another pattern that works for them but i do like them they tend to work pretty well Uh, i i do like them especially from a deficit even
1: yeah i noticed you do it from a deficit a lot yeah Um, i think the expectations for load should be reduced relative to rdl for people
0: absolutely
1: (laughs) (laughs) and have that be like Number one rate limiter of like stiff leg relative to RDL is that drifting of the bar away from pelvis position or hip position. Yes. Um, is a large rate limiter and load for a stiff leg. So,
0: yes. We and t- it'll be a huge litmus test for how well you can actually brace and keep your pelvis to ribcage position solid.
1: Yeah. So, if you struggle with pelvis to ribcage position, not suggesting stiff leg for. Yeah. for that person yeah it'll go badly yes yeah so like i i have someone who has injuries previous injury history like not too long ago like 16 20 weeks uh adductor magnus medial hamstring plus ql all things that attach to pelvis and then one the pelvis rib cage um that that's like not even a thought. Like that's, that's so far gone right now. Like we may eventually get there, but right now that's not happening. So if if you have injury profiles surrounding that, fix that first before you kind of try to the stiff leg.
0: Yep. Um, Other thoughts on, on why not to do a rack pull. Number one, be nice to your gym owner. Don't fuck their bars. Okay. Is, it's absolutely the worst thing that you could ever do to a barbell to start with. So that's just not cool. Yeah. And then, aside from that part, which is just my own gripe, because I don't like picking up a bar that's already bent. No, nobody does. Okay, it's my job to do the bending. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, aside from that, usually the issue with doing a rack pull at mid shin or at the knee is that even if you try to set your hips high, you're not going to be all that successful in doing it with the drive coming from the hamstring and the glute. It's, you're just not going to be able to get enough leverage for you to get that bar to move if it's an appropriate load for you. Yeah. Unless you pull your torso up, you get yourself into more of like a squatted-like pattern instead of a deep hinge, and then you're going to pull it up from there. Yeah. Which is typically what you end up seeing. It, it looks a whole lot less like the top end of an RDL or a stiff leg or just a regular conventional. And it looks a whole lot more like you're like strong man deadlifting it where you yeah. squatted it against your legs all the way up to the top.
1: Yeah, for sure. And yeah. you can really see this with the shoulder over the bar cue doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah that's what you're probably looking for. And if you're doing it correctly, and if it's set low enough for you to be able to do the shoulder over the barbecue, um, yeah. but yeah, no, no real utility for rack pulls. In my opinion, I think mid shin can be close if the individual is tall enough, but that's like getting very, very specific. And I'm, I'm willing to say that there's probably not much utility for a rack pull for 99% of people.
0: No, even then, there's a better way of going about the same type of movement through a different variation where you're going to get more benefit. Yeah. So I just don't – and besides, like, because we're actually – we're more minded about patterns because we are who we are. So we're thinking, like, the overall – most people thinking rack pull. They're trying to think, like, I'm getting all back on this. So we can cover that too. So usually what happens when you're trying to just get your back on a hinge like that – you're already disadvantaging your, your pelvis is almost never in the right position for that. Then <laughs> you try to pull from that position where you're trying to get yourself to feel your back. You're already putting yourself in a bad spot. Yeah. And then to further that, if you're not getting hip drive because you're purposefully not trying to get hip drive, cause you're trying to do it for your back. Yeah. Then you're guaranteeing that the bar path isn't going to be good. Your chest is going to come up. You're going to be standing mostly upright by the time you start moving it. And what does that mean? What does that mean? You don't have like any meaningful moment distance between your hip, which is the actual hinge point, it's the actual fulcrum, it's the axis, not your spinal segments. So the idea that you can do a back hinge and only get your back out of it is absolutely freaking ridiculous. It's impossible to do. You cannot, you cannot move your entire torso a given distance without your hip moving you cannot achieve that unless you're doing a jefferson curl where literally you're keeping everything the same except for your spine is curling into a c and then going straight again yeah. that is not the movement you're doing you are not doing a hinge without getting drive from the lower body and if you try to ignore that fact You're going to put yourself in a bad position. The load will not be accurate for what you're actually able to do. So you're already going to down your output, which is not part of what you want. Position is going to be bad. You're also beyond that point. Again, to reiterate, you're going to be so upright that the moment distance is almost useless for how much actual torque is being placed on the muscles of your back that you're trying to hit. It's entirely a useless movement. You will get more, out of just doing a regular pull or even hear me out, doing like a loaded carry.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, 100%. They
0: like, even that because what, what are you actually achieving? Your torso is in relatively the same position as it would be when you screw up a hinge to try and get your back to do the work. Then you do an actual load and carry with any iota of speed in any iota of load. You're going to be working all of those same muscle tissues in a way that's actually going to be more additive to the overall program anyway and your overall strength than doing a movement that's going to fuck up the bar that you're using, that you're going to likely put yourself in a horrible position for. You're not going to move the load that's accurate for you. And then you're just going to take up a whole bunch of your fatigue that you're allotted to get from your sessions and just throw it out the window for a movement that's completely useless for the goal.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 I don't, I haven't programmed a rack pull and I could not tell you how long, just from that exact thought process there. Like I'm not, no. I'm not using fatigue for that. Like there's so many better ways to address. That's not a hip hinge to me like that. It's not, it's, it's, it's a squat with thoracic extension yeah <laughs> with hands in front of you. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. So Yeah. Um, Nick, I think that was fantastic for answering a lot of the questions. Just so you all know from here, guys, we're probably going to be a little bit more targeted on topics when we do these. So um, the the questions are a little bit more directed towards specific topics. If you have topic suggestions that you would like to see, let us know, just shoot us a message. um, And so we'll be kind of specific on topics. Um, Really, really good questions today, guys. So keep it up. Really looking forward to this monthly installment. Um, Nick, do you have anything else for them before we, before we hop off?
0: Um, no, nothing to Ooh, add. I oh, do four yeah. spots,
1: four spots left in the seminar. April 10th, this will come out before then, so um, you'll have about a week left to get your tickets. So, make sure that if you want to come and, and learn a lot more about this in detail than in person, you grab those last few tickets that are left. But otherwise, guys, thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you for coming on, really and we're looking at this happening. monthly installment. All
0: right. See you next time.